Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Uh, before we begin, we want to put out a quick content warning on the topics we'll be discussing. Some of them are definitely triggering, and of course, it is all mature. So please keep that in mind as you enjoy today's episode. Uh, hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Emotional Duct Tape. I'm Corey. I'm Jamie. And uh, we're so glad you're here hanging out with us. Uh, what I love about this podcast, getting to do this podcast and talk to my friend Jamie all the time, is we get to meet new friends all the time. We get to hear stories about people who have gone through stuff in their lives like we all have, um, different situations, of course, but it's great to make new friends, to hear stories, and to, to kind of bond over, over the process of being a human, really, at, at the heart of it. And... Um, Today we have a very special guest, though. Um, she is, I would say, more popular on TikTok than I am. She is... <laughs> Sorry, Corey, I don't mean to laugh, but... Uh... <laughs> hey, my 300 followers um, are loyal, so there's that. Um, but please welcome to the podcast, Abby Rosemarin. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Did I say it right? I said it right, didn't I? Yep, Rosemarin. You got <laughs> oh. it. It's, oh gosh, I'm terrible at last names, but thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Um, it's so great to have you here. Uh, when I when I saw your story, I think it was on a TikTok um, post, and I said, um, there's, so there's a story there that, that we want to hear, we want to share with the world. So um, obviously, we're, we're talking about um, you're growing up with, with um, a, some more than a somewhat of a toxic environment. So let's let's have you talk about that. Yes. So um, it is. It's funny. I, I you know no brag, no brag. But the video I made uh, that uh, we're referencing here is the only video of mine to hit a million views, which was like wow, that's incredible. Which was exciting, and it, it's it's so funny um, that that was the one that blew up because, I mean, my stuff has always been really random, but uh, I always love making stuff that's about you know complex post traumatic stress and adult children and alcohol because I grew up without that information and just thinking something was wrong with me. And then that one, which basically for those who have not seen that video, like how dare you not be one of the million, I mean, geez. Uh, I basically list out the things that I did not realize until my twenties were because I was an adult child of an alcoholic. And then um, as many of the commenters pointed out, you know, this is also common for children with trauma. And of course I'm raising my hand, I'm like, yeah, me too. That's, I fall into that category as well. Um, but uh, when it comes to talking about kind of my upbringing and kind of that journey to get to a place where I could make these self-aware TikToks. I always like to start off with my very first memory, um, which, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, a trigger warning there, because I'm going to be talking about guns and uh, essentially uh, at least the uh, mention of suicide. So that kind of gives you an idea of <laughs> the kind of first memory I had. Um, my very first memory, to make a very long story short, my father, who it was his birthday, he was very upset that my mom didn't plan a birthday party for him. Um, my father, who is was a was a complete uh, and severe alcoholic. Uh, he instead went to the bar, got very drunk, came home, picked a fight with my mom. The fight escalated because my mom also was just, you know, very mentally ill, very mentally unstable. So they kind of fed off of each other. And eventually my father decided that he was going to win the argument by going upstairs, getting his gun and making the household think that he had, well, 
unalive himself. Um, and the way that that childhood house of mine was structured, that the second floor, when you stuck your hand out of a window, which is what he did, he took his gun, he stuck it out a window. The way it worked is that when he put his hand out the window, it was technically right above my head in the on the first floor. So here I am on the first floor, you know, there's a roof above me. So it's not like I see the gun, but in terms of distance, there's six feet between me and the gun. My very first memory is hearing the loudest noise in the world, the loudest noise I'd ever heard, and having that stop me in my tracks. Um, I distinctly remember taking a step, stopping. I could feel my, I felt my bones shake. Like that's one of the most vivid memories of it is that my bones were shaking and I didn't understand. You know, I, I'd be older when I would find out that it was a gunshot and that my father did it with the explicit purpose of making my mom think that he had done that to himself. Um, and my mom, she called the police because I mean, that's, what else can you do when you, a gun just went off in your house? And my second memory is being carried out by my dad as the police car is there. Like I very vividly remember the police lights. I remember the police officer standing in front of my dad, just very calmly saying, okay, well, can we talk about this inside? Um, and I imagine my dad probably carried me out to greet the police officer as a, look, I'm a dad. Look at my three-year-old that I have in my arms. You oh, know? That's what I was going to ask. How old were you? Yeah. So, so yeah, I was, I was three and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, if anything, really that particular memory kind of gets me a little angry because it's like, so you understood you were a dad to a young child at that point, but not enough to go, maybe I shouldn't fire my gun with my young child in my house. And also I had a little brother who was about one, one and a half at the time. So you have these two babies in the house. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, and then my third memory on top of that is my father being led away in handcuffs and the officer who was leading him out saying, everything's going to be all right. Now the, the whole situation was very calm. Like it was a, like, Hey, listen, you did this thing. We need to take you downtown. Not like there was a fight that broke out or anything like that, but still it was very like, okay, those are my first three memories. <laughs> and it, you know, it, it took a really long time for me to look back and go, okay, that crystallized a lot of things that crystallized probably how I process fear process what I understood or uh, crystallize how I see my household, how I see my family. And unfortunately, that really kind of sets the tone. That upbringing was very uh, challenging. It was very toxic. Again, my father was a severe alcoholic. My mother was on top of many things, I think, and again, this is armchair diagnoses, uh, kind of verified by somebody I know who's got a toe in the mental health world, but would not be uh, qualified to diagnose my mom, but my mom's most likely a paranoid schizophrenic. And unfortunately, a lot of her paranoid episodes revolved around me. It was, you know, a very complicated thing. Apparently, I reminded her of her mom, and she had a bad relationship with her mom, and it just kind of spiraled out from there. So you have these two individuals you know, one who is the severe alcoholic who is known to do dramatics uh, when he was drunk. That was that was the big thing um, when people would ask, like, was your father abusive? And I would say, you know, in terms of that uh, stereotypical drunk dad, you know, wandering around the house, smacking his kids just because like, no, that that wasn't the case. But he was known to be dramatic when he was drunk. And if that drama involved cruelty towards his children, so be it. And there was a lot of verbal abuse, a little bit of physical abuse. Uh, my mother was his enabler. Unfortunately, she was very much, there were times, 
you know, just diving into some more fun memories. There was one time where we were at the family dinner table and I'm talking with my mom, just, you know, having a chat. And my dad is completely sloshed. He's, he's so out of it that like he can barely get the fork to his mouth. And I was pointing to something on the table as I was talking with my mom. And again, this is a super casual conversation. You know, there's, there, it's not even like, oh, this is a tense conversation and it's clear we're about to start fighting. Like we're just chatting. But my dad in his drunkenness decided I must have flipped my mom off because I pointed at something. So he grabs my wrist and he starts trying to pry my middle finger, which mind you is in a, in a closed fist because I was pointing at something. So you would think, you know, a sober mind would go, her index finger is up. She wasn't flipping anybody off, but that's where my dad was. And he started trying to bend the finger back and I had to rip my hand back. And to this day, I'm like, if I didn't rip, get my hand out of his hand, I would have had a broken finger. And the next day I remember trying to talk to my mom about it. And she was like, well, you shouldn't have flipped me off then. And I was beside myself. I was like, mom, we weren't, we were not fighting. We were just chatting. I was pointing at something, but she had already changed the memory in her head to, oh, we were fighting and I flipped her off. And just, I was so beside myself. And that was really the kind of household that I was growing up in. And it was very chaotic, very unstable. They fought constantly. Um, you know, and a lot of it, I could also understand why my mom would have the blowups that she did because, you know, she's married to this alcoholic who is, you know, on top of everything else, a bit narcissistic. He's in himself. He's very clearly not a devoted husband. She didn't know how to say, give her own boundaries. She didn't know how to say what she wanted. And so she would just blow up as a result. So in some ways I felt for her in other ways, it was like, but you have these two children you're try trying to raise. Like, in some ways, the smart move when your you know, when your husband shoots a gun with your two young children in the house, that's your cue to go. Okay, I'm stepping back. We're moving, <laughs> I'm moving out. Um, so I, I have a quick question for you, though. So thinking about um, your dad, real quick. I, I mean, obviously, your dad is responding to to things in his own life. I mean, did he have some sort of major trauma, some major grief that triggered all this for him? Was it, I mean, do you know anything about that background for your dad? My grandmother really had to scramble because their dad was off drinking and smoking. He eventually died at the age of 59 because, you know, long story short, he lived a really, really hard life and it caught up on him. So I recognize that for him, a lot, a lot of it was trauma and never getting a chance to heal from it. Um, because to dive into my dad's personal life a little bit more, at the age of 19, uh, his girlfriend got pregnant, which especially back then, that's, you know, let's see, 1959 is when that would have happened because my dad was a, actually a pre-baby boomer. He was born in 1940. Um, if your 18-year-old girlfriend says, hey, I'm pregnant, you get married, and that was just a very toxic marriage itself. They had five more kids. They divorced. It was, there was a lot of stuff wow. going on. Wow. Oh yeah. That... So you have a lot of half siblings. I do. I, I have a lot of half siblings and they're all old enough to be not only old enough to be my parents, they all have kids who are my age, uh, which makes a very interesting family tree. And that also, that dynamic kind of plays a role kind of later on in this lovely story. Um, but yeah, so my dad dealt with a lot of trauma um, and never got a chance to heal from it. And as a result became, basically went down the exact same route that his dad did, which is unfortunately a really common story for all these older generations is, hey, here's this trauma and here's them just continuing the cycle. 
It's amazing too to think about that because um, our generation, we are so equipped and aware of our issues. We're trying to become more equipped and aware of our issues, and we're we're the generation that's actively saying, "Okay, I need help." Whether that's therapy, whether that's medication, there we're, we're we're trying to to counteract all the the damage that was done in our in our family tree up to this point. You know, we're we're trying to break that that curse, so to speak. Oh, well, um, we're like empowered. Yeah. To to change um, versus, you know, this is how I grew up and this is how I'm just going to continue on. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's definitely the case because, yeah, there's, I, I mean, you think about even, so my, my stepdad is the same generation. He was born in 44, uh, one of 14 kids. Um, they shared hand-me-downs. They lived in the worst neighborhood of the city. Um Dad was an alcoholic. Dad spent all the money at the bar. A very similar situation. So this is like resonating. But my dad is very hardened. Not he's a soft. He's a, he's a sensitive sensitive guy. But he's also like you know you could do anything you want to. You just got to push yourself hard enough. So that kind of that mentality of don't quit, never quit, which is good. But it's also kind of you know you got to be aware of of your of your pitfalls and how to to um, kind of fill the gaps. Exactly. And and that right there, when I think about, you know, especially as I started getting older, I was really unaware of that. I, I knew, oh, my, my household is toxic and I need to get out of this. And my mom is crazy and my dad's an alcoholic. And I knew these things, but I never really put it to paper as to, well, these are the reasons why you're doing the things that you're doing, you know. And again, the, the household really never changed, never got better. Uh, if anything, it got worse as I was an adolescent because now I'm the rebellious teenager. And there was one aspect that actually made it even harder for me to seek out any kind of help where, you know, to my father's credit, this is one of the places where he did something very right. He knew something was wrong with the household and he wanted to go to family counseling. And unfortunately, he would only say it in the like the height of something bad happening, like never when the dust settled, it was like, listen, let's let's go see a therapist. But still, my dad would say like, oh, you know, we need to go to counseling. We need a family counselor. And my mom would always say, no, 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 we don't need to. Abigail's just being a rebellious teenager. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think about like, maybe that's the reason why I also don't like being called Abigail. Like, it's like, I'm no, I'm Abby. Like, don't, don't, uh, <laughs> don't associate with me with that. But that really, I, I realized that I really internalized that because it got, when it became time to actually go to therapy, there was so much resistance and there was a lot of like, well, no, I'm just broken. I'm just this, I'm a monster. I'm, and I would realize, well, I can, I can find its origin. It's, it is right there with my mom explicitly telling my dad that the reason we don't have to go to therapy is because I'm just being a, you know, a typical teenager. Um, but yeah, so eventually, you know, I grow up, I, I make sure to move into dormitories when I went to college, even though I went to school, it, like I could have commuted easily. I, I grew up just south of Boston. I was in school in Boston, the town I lived in. You can take a bus to one of the subway stops. It's that close. And I was like, nope, nope, moving in. From there, I, you know, ended up, <laughs> I need out. Um, you know, and then moved into my own, very much started separating myself from my family. But I definitely was not the pilot in my own life. I, my emotional reactivity called the shots. My complete lack of boundaries and uh, complete passivity called the shots. 
And then something happened in my late twenties and it was just this confluence of like all the things all at once where I was dealing with a predator who one of the biggest, big reasons that he was able to do the things that he was able to do was because I had no boundaries. And it was very easy for a, you know, charismatic man in a position of authority to tell me my reality, to tell me, no, it's not a big deal. And, oh, you're actually the one who started it. You're the one who caused it. And it was very, very easy for me to let that happen then. And of course, I'm not trying to victim blame myself. Like that guy was a predator. He chose me because he knew uh, <laughs> he, he saw the din dinner bell above my head and that that's on him. And I, I'm not definitely not victim blaming myself, but I'm seeing the things that made it possible for him to become that terrible human being at me. Uh, I reckon, I realized it very, very late as in trying to have children to realize, wait a minute, I don't want kids. I, I never wanted kids. And I just went with the flow because that's what everybody else wanted. Oh my God, who am I? What do I want? And this, these two things on top of the fact that now we're getting into Kind of that part two that you know also talks about why knowing about my half siblings comes into play. My father was actually dying at this time, so my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's in his sixties, and you know I mean Parkinson's is a tough uh, disease to have. It's very, very neurodegenerative, um, but he made it worse by continuing to drink. He made it worse, you know. And anybody you don't need, you don't need a medical degree to know that you shouldn't be mixing Parkinson's medication with alcohol. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's not a good thing. And on top of that, he had very much the addict's mindset, which is, you know, I can do what I want. And there was one thing that really expedited the process where his doctors were like, hey, we need to actually shift your medication a little bit. Um, but he liked how he felt better when the medication was at a, a different dosage. So he started to just self-medicate and it caused basically a stroke-like situation. We thought it was a stroke because of how he went delirious and collapsed and you know was unresponsive. So we thought, oh God, he had a stroke, but it was actually because he'd been messing around with his medication. And that basically started this uh, spiral that would cause uh, the next nine or so months to be basically like that, that march towards death. Um, and it was extremely tough because at this point, my dad was trying to play his two families off of each other. So he had his, you know, his first family, he had his, sec his second family. He didn't like the fact that my mom was listening to the doctors, doing doctor recommendations. And again, one of the things my mom was doing right was, hey, I'll do what the doctors say. He didn't like that. And so he was trying to get pitch his first family against his second family. Uh, even saying things like, listen, you know, uh, my wife has an inheritance. So if you help me get divorced, I can give you that inheritance because the money will go to me too, because we don't have a prenup, like stuff like that. Oh my wow. And it was really, really tough. And here I am like trying to navigate these family dynamics and all my family dynamics are shattering at this point. I'm watching how my um, father's family uh, felt about basically his late in life family, me, my mom, and my little brother. Um, I'm seeing my older siblings. I'm seeing a lot of their true colors coming out. You know, people that I consider almost like a second mom in some ways being like, oh my God, what like, and then on top of that, I was keeping my distance. I was minimal contact at this point. Like, I'll see you on holidays and maybe I'll call you once every month or two, but that's it. 
and I refused to come back down to Boston to deal with this stuff. And it really was, you know, you guys just want to squabble over the fact that my mom wants to listen to the doctors and he doesn't, and I don't want to deal with that. And I also don't want to be around my dad. He's still the person that he is. Uh, yeah. Especially since he's, uh, pitching these two families against each other. I don't like, he's deliberately making me out to be a bad person so he can get extra sympathy from his family. I, I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, so I had all of this stuff happening and I really was going, why am I like this? Why am I like this? So I'm in finally in therapy. And this is actually something I've talked a little bit about in my TikToks as well. I had the worst therapist. And <laughs> I, I mean, I think she meant well. I really do. But she didn't know how to handle somebody who had already, like, you know, done a lot of, like, asking those questions. Like, I, I want to know, like, why am I like this? Like, she was used to being the person to ask those questions. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm asking them, but I need your help in finding the answers. And she would literally just be like, hadn't tried meditation. <laughs> And, and, no. and for those playing the home no. game, I'm a yoga instructor. <laughs> like literally all day I lead meditations and I, and she would actually knew my job and I would get passive aggressive and kind of be like, well, yeah, I meditate every day. I'm a yoga instructor. And she'd kind of shrug her shoulders and she would not be available for like weeks and weeks. I, I still remember seeing her just after my father died. And one of my sisters uh, was super vilifying me to the point that one of her friends, now again, these people are all old enough to be my parents. One of her friends bullied me on Facebook on the day oh my, my father gosh. died. So, and so I'm in a bad, bad place, but I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing my therapist. It's my, it's just pure luck that I get to see her this week because she wasn't available for the last two weeks. And so we have it and I lay everything out. Hey, my dad died. My sister's basically bullying me. She's got a friend to bully me. Like my life is shit right now. La la la. And afterwards she was like, okay, so my next available appointment is five weeks from now. Oh my God. And I was like, and she was like, well, and if you need an emergency one, you know, just call up the hospital and I'm sure they can. And all I could think of was like, what? I was like, oh you, my <laughs> it's like you, and, and the oh worst, my God. And the worst part too is that wow. she knew that one of my issues was asserting myself and advocating for myself. And here she is being like, well, if you need something, just advocate for yourself. It's like, mm. you know, this brings up a good topic though. Um, you know, as you're telling the story, what I kept thinking of is, you know, how the grieving process was for you after he passed. You know, um, I'll just share a little bit about myself um, real quick. I lost my mother um, essentially to addiction. And um, <clears throat> I had this battle after she passed of feeling some sort of relief in that I knew that the stuff couldn't continue, but she was, she was a wonderful mother. She really was. She just had her demons. So, you know, I missed her, but I was also feeling relief. And, you know, did you have these kinds of feelings? How did you feel, you know, Mm. In <laughs> a lot of ways, I was a, it was the exact same boat. And I always say that, you know, there's a saying that you don't know what it's like to lose a parent until you lose a parent. But I, there was almost a little subsection of that where you don't know what it's like to lose a parent that you had a complicated relationship with unless you had a complication, relation, complicated relationship with the person that you lost. And 
it was, I, you know, there was a lot of sadness, but it was not for the man who died. It was for the man who never got a chance to live. The father I never had, the, the aspects of his personality that I would see peek out from time to time, because again, not everybody's all good or all bad. And I would see this version of him that would have been like, man, you would have been an awesome father. Like, this would have been great. And I was mourning that, but by the same token, I, there was relief. You know, this, this, I, there is something to be said that one of the stories that I would always, you know, cause I was, a, I was always in my head as a kid and making up these fantasy worlds. And they were always fantasy worlds where my parents either like died off or something happened and I was adopted into a new family. Like there's something to be said that one of my fantasies as a kid was to have a new family. Um, so when he died, it was those complicated emotions of uh, like there is grief, but at the same time, I'm, I'm relieved. And then came this extra thing of, okay, well, now you've had all the memories that you're ever going to have with your dad. Now you have to process that. <laughs> so, yeah. So my next question is um, thinking about, you know, your, your father's past, obviously you're, you're you have a therapist who's not very good, clearly. <laughs> Um, and I think we've all experienced not great therapists in our lives and going, okay, yeah, this isn't for me. Um, so my question for you is, um, you talked about all these watershed moments. Was there a penultimate moment where, where you kind of let the floodgates go? Maybe you found a better therapist and you just kind of began to process it all in the way that it should have been from the get go, I guess. Oh, yeah. And in some ways, I almost have to thank my therapist for being as inept as she was, because if she was just good enough, I would have definitely leaned on her and been like, all right, I have my therapist. She's going to help me out. And uh, she was clearly not like her specialty. Look, like looking back on it, I really should have been more careful about specialties. Her specialty was eating disorders. And thankfully, that is one thing that I've not had to deal with. Um, but she had really no background in addiction, especially children of addiction. And as a result, I'm like, okay, I'm on my own. I got to figure this out. And I, I don't even know how it came about. Um, actually, no, I know exactly how it came about, or at least what started it. My went so what my going all the way back to my first memory. One of the things that the courts ordered was my dad had to go to AA meetings, and my mom was recommended to go to Al-Anon meetings. And that's actually another one of my childhood memories is a, just a vague recollection of the daycare room while my mom went to Al-Anon meetings. And she eventually stopped. She only went for a couple of years, but that was always kind of in the back of my mind. And I was like, okay, my therapist is crap. <laughs> so, but my mom went to Al-Anon meetings. And, and for those who don't know, like Al-Anon is basically for those who are related to, married to, friends with somebody who's addicted to alcohol. It's, it's kind of the support group. And I was like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to go to these meetings and see what that does for me. You know, the, the addict in my life is technically out of my life. I don't need to know how to, pro, you know, deal with him on a day-to-day -day basis, but let's see how this goes. And those were extremely cathartic. I think the first four or five that I went to, I was just a crying mess the entire time. And they were good cries. Like they were, I was needed, I was processing. And then I would get in my car and drive around crying. And again, this was all needed. I needed to get these emotions out of me. And it was through there that I started looking a little into like, okay, well, I'm learning about what it's like to be someone who is related to somebody who is addicted to alcohol. 
let me continue to do research into this because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of myself in these other people. I'm seeing a lot of myself in the literature and let me continue to research. And I stumbled, I don't even know how I stumbled upon it. It just happened uh, to stumble upon adult children of alcoholics and the personality traits of somebody who's an adult child of an alcoholic. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is me. This I'm textbook. I, all these things, which is probably why you got all those views on that video. You know what I mean? I'm sure that everybody was like, Holy crap. <laughs> I relate to this. Exactly. And, and that's actually a huge reason why I would make that content about adult children of alcoholics and CPTSD was because it's like, I remember how that was for me and being like, wait a minute, I'm not this like weird, broken thing, monster. Like, why do I do these, this stupid shit? It's like, no, 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 no. You're an adult child of an alcoholic. And from there, it went further into um, learning that I have complex post-traumatic stress where, you know, because that was another thing that I would try to talk with my therapist about, not so much complex post-traumatic stress because I didn't know what that was at the time, but I knew about borderline personality disorder. And I was like, well, maybe this is who I am because, you know, the emotional reactivity, the highs and lows, the, um, the unstable relationships that you tend to get into, no boundaries, blah, blah, blah. Like this, this is me. And I would say, I'm like, I'm worried I'm borderline. And she would never give me an answer. And she was like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to say whether or not you are, but even if you were, the only treatment is radical self-acceptance, which is a fucking lie. Like, pardon my French, but that's a bullshit <laughs> lie. That that's the only treatment for borderline. And, um, and uh, um, yeah, again, she just, uh, it was very clear. They paired me up with somebody who had a very specific specialty and that's what she was able to do. And then she had someone like me and was just like, have you tried meditation? Like that's basically, <laughs> uh, and, and then she had the audacity, you know, cause again, I had really poor boundaries. I had a poor, like putting my foot down. She was the one who was like, well, I think we've gone as far as we can go. So, uh, you know, instead of like recommending me to another therapist or anything like that, she would just be like, yeah, so I, I think we've gone as far as we can go. So I think we'll stop our sessions. And it's like, Oh my goodness. But Going back again, I'm like, I, I, I must be borderline then if I'm going to be doing these stupid things and making these stupid life choices. And then I would learn more about complex post-traumatic stress, which, you know, again, I, I am not a healthcare expert. I, I'm not in the mental health field, but it basically what happens when a child has prolonged, sustained trauma as they are growing up and like, here's all the ways that it manifests. And again, I was just, I would read this and go, this is me. This, this is me. Everything about uh, complex post-traumatic stress is me. And again, these were these huge watershed moments where everything just started clicking into place. And, you know, it was, you know, I wish I could say I learned my things and then everything was better. It's, it's still an ongoing uh, journey. Like, you know, I'm actually hoping to return to therapy because I've been out of it for maybe a year or two. I, I did get a second therapist afterwards and she was wonderful. And, you know, she told me, she's like, I don't think you have borderline personality disorder. She was the one to tell me outright, which was also very validating. And really the only reason I stopped seeing her is because she moved uh, locations and I was like, I, I can't travel 45, 50 minutes to see you. So, uh, but you know, I'm hoping to go back into therapy because I'm seeing a lot of things starting to regress a little bit. I did have some not so great relationships this year, both, you know, friendship and romantic that made me go like, oh, oh wait a minute here. Like <laughs> I'm showing my lack of boundaries again. I'm, I'm trying to be the helper. I'm, you know, not calling people out when they're not treating me well. Um, 
And so, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's something that uh, I really want to get back to. But the fact that I finally had a name for all this that, you know, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not broken. I'm specifically this adult child of an alcoholic. I'm specifically a child of trauma and I have complex post-traumatic stress. All right. Everything's coming together. What I what I want to say though is I, is I love that um, that you you're a fighter, dude. I got I just want to say like you are a fighter. I mean, some people even in our generation they can take all the crap you've dealt with and say, okay, this is my lot in life. We're just we're just gonna go through. You could have taken the first therapist's you know recommendation for your life and just said, okay, this is my lot. This is my cross to carry. But you were like, no, like we're gonna beat this thing we're gonna we're gonna bury it we're gonna we're gonna bury it cold 12 feet under you know and i it's so that, that's testament to you that's amazing but yeah that's yeah. and the self-awareness i think is really huge um because you know as much as um you know therapy and other things you know help it's really important that we are able to reflect and go okay maybe you know, I'm, I'm doing something that I shouldn't be. Um, but then being able to go, I know why I'm doing that at least, <laughs> you know, and it's like the, the validation is, is, is huge. Um, like that, that's huge. That's a huge first step. And really when I think about the older generations, there was no, none of that questioning. It was, they'll put their foot down and go, no, no, that's just the way things are. Like they already had the answer. It's just the way things are. It's how it is. And no, no, you're the problem. And, uh, so if we can do that, even just ask ourselves, okay, where is this coming from? Like we've already done so much of the necessary first steps. So another question I have too is um, you going through your life and for me, um, my my parents, both my mom and my biological father were never to the extent that you experienced, but I found myself constantly self-evaluating myself saying any, any sort of any sort of behavior that I had that would be considered like toxic for lack of a better word or other i'm thinking oh my gosh this is my parents and i start getting this inherent paranoia that i'm turning into my parents like all their worst traits but then i realize like uh, did you have those moments where, where you have to like realize okay that I'm, I'm not this person because i can acknowledge and i can recognize this problem in my life oh big time that has been one of my biggest fears um and actually one of my partners uh he used to joke he's like if i ever wanted to uh like absolutely decimate you to your core and of course this is joking this is not like any type of abusive conversation to be like all i'd have to say is like man you're being just like your mom. And that'd be literally the worst thing I could ever say to you. And, uh, and that is something that I would be very afraid of. And one of the things that I realized, especially when I was having those watershed moments and, and realizing, oh God, I'm an adult child and alcoholic, was I would have to, I would look back on my twenties and went, oh my God, there are so many aspects of my mom that I was showing like just all those toxic, toxic things that she was doing as a very passive boundary free person. 
I was doing and it gave me just this ugh feeling and that's on top of the more the smaller moments the micro moments where I would lose my temper or I'd get emotionally reactive and I would just think oh my god I'm my mom right now and even with my dad where you know thankfully knock on wood I haven't had any issues with substance abuse but you know again he was very narcissistic he would do things that were like why would you do that that's really self-serving and I would then look back on again my 20s and be like wow I was being my dad there. That was so self-serving of me. And it took that moment of going, well, I'm first and foremost, my parents never had that level of introspection and retrospection. So I'm already a step ahead. And yes, it's, it is going to be very easy to fall into those grooves, you know, because I mean, that, that's what grooves are for. Like you get near the edge, you fall into it. But the simple fact that I recognized it and went, no, this this is not actually how I want to do things. I'm going to take that step back. I can't change the past. I can't change my my 20s and the bad decisions I made in my 20s. But I can step, you know, continue going forward. And even now where I will feel emotionally reactive to something. And again, that kind of like regression that I've been feeling, which I also will thank the pandemic for where everyone's mental health is just sliding right now. Uh, <laughs> where I... Which, you know, I, I, and I've noticed that across the board, I have a friend who's bipolar and she made a very public post being like, hey, I had this under control and on, thanks to the pandemic, I really have to reevaluate my treatment plan because, oh boy. Um, but even, you know, with that stuff, I would be, I would recognize like, okay, I had a moment where I was feeling reactive, but the simple fact that I'm starting to identify it in the moment is huge. And the fact that I can start taking those steps back long before I could have, you know, five, 10 years ago is huge. And that alone lets me know, like, yes, my parents put this seed essentially, the, the, uh, you know, into my garden, but I'm not letting that plant grow. That's really great. Um, one question I do have too uh, is your is your mom still alive? So yes, my mom is still alive. Um, she and I do not really have much of a relationship. Uh, I so kind of a part two to her situation. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and this this was something I could tell from very early on. Just the way her mind was starting to get, especially when she hit her fifties, and I'm like, this seems like early onset Alzheimer's. Um, they started doing, uh, I think CAT scans is the word I'm looking for, but, uh, well, well, something, some scan of the brain where it was showing, Hey, there's missing gray matter. And I was like, okay, like she's got Alzheimer's, but they weren't diagnosing her just yet. And then she got diagnosed in her sixties uh, and it has been pretty progressive. I think officially she's at stage four, according to the doctors, my little brother, who's the one who's been mostly taking care of my mom, uh, says, no, it's way closer to stage five. They just haven't bumped it up yet. Um, before that, I would try to call once a month and genuinely it felt like a social worker checking in on her clients. It, in, and honestly, the only way I could survive those calls was to see it as a social worker checking on our clients. Uh, the few times that she would have these more moments of lucidity and I'd be like, oh my God, a mom. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, we, we want that parent-child relationship and if we get a hint of it we're like ah, I'm here and I would let my guard down and start talking about my life and then she would switch back to her kind of non-sequitur rambly self and it would 
devastate me to my core. Um, so I really, really had to keep that distance and it was emotionally exhausting. Like I basically would have to plan out, okay, I'm going to put my Bluetooth headphones in. So I'm not even holding my phone and I'm going to like do my laundry and mop my floors. And like, I would do literally everything while she was rambling at me. Cause I couldn't handle it. Otherwise, um, as of late, I have not been, what was that? You're a champ. You're a champ, Abby. <laughs> Thanks. I, I mean, I, I have not been doing that. Uh, basically, for all of 2020, I haven't done that. And it, it, it sounds a little terrible, but my brother would, you know, he would give me updates and he sent me a text, I don't know, sometime in like February that was like, you know, have you been calling up mom? And I thought it was kind of one of those guilt trippy, like, have you been calling her? I was like, oh, no, you know, I haven't really talked with her since New Year's. And he was like, oh, I just asked because she keeps talking about the last time you guys had a phone call and she's like oh yeah no I called up Abby or Abigail the other weekend and like no she didn't I call me the the other weekend she's like oh well that's the story that she keeps telling me and I just thought to myself oh she has memories that I called her cool I don't have to call <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately that's really been the case I, I've taken a really big step back and uh, a part of that is one, she doesn't even know I'm not calling, so it's not like she's upset about it. And two, I need to take care of myself. It was really just, it was entirely for her for me to do those phone calls, and they were chipping away at my spirit. Uh, I saw her, the last time I saw her was in 2019. She actually had a fall that caused a blood infection, and my very macabre mind went, oh, better visit her before she dies, <laughs> which, you know... <laughs> Especially with everything that happened with my dad, it's not that out of uh, out of the ordinary to at least have that mindset. Um, so I visited her in the hospital, which was really uncomfortable for me. She was very out of it. I, I mean, a huge applause to the nurses that she was dealing with or that had to deal with her because they were so patient with her. But, you know, just watching how out of it she was and how she kept calling the nurse, like she would say she had to use the bathroom, call the nurse's station and then be like, I need antibiotics. And it just kept doing that over and over. And it would be really, really tough. And I was like, okay, I, I visited. I, I was worried that she was not going to survive her blood infection. I've, I did my visits. You know, I'm going to take my step back now. And yeah, we, we, it is, there is no relationship there. I get uh, updates from my little brother from time to time. He'll text me and that's really it. I I'm basically family free at this point. And uh, yeah, there's, there, I have almost no relationship with my siblings every once in a while. One of my brothers who I have a better relationship with than the other ones would just be texting me like, Oh, Hey, how are you doing? You know? Uh, and this is before the pandemic, you know, you should come, come down to Boston and we'll like have a barbecue or something. And then nothing would ever happen with that, you know, cause that's, that's, also a huge a very common trait in my family is that oh we need to do a thing sometime and they never do it um but yeah I don't talk with any of my siblings I really don't talk with the sister who vilified me and let her friend bully me like that it's yeah there's there's basically no contact anymore well I think there's something to be said about you know just because we're born into something doesn't mean that we owe anybody anything and that we can't have boundaries where we need them just because it's family, you know? Um, so I think, you know, that's what works for you. And, and I think that's great. So, you know, what do you feel is, is one of the things that, one of the good things that has come out of all of this? 
something that I had been shifting into more and more of before the pandemic hit was trauma sensitive yoga. Uh, because one of the things that helped me kind of get in back into my own body that I was completely dissociated from was yoga and learning bodily autonomy through yoga and learning body empowerment through yoga and being like, well, no, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to teach classes for people who have been traumatized like me and, and, and do that. And one of the negative aspects of the kind of upbringing I've had, I've been able to reshape into a really positive one, which is, you know, so an aspect of both PTSD and CPTSD is that hypervigilance. You know, I'm scanning the room constantly. I'm reading the room constantly. And, you know, the reason for that is because you had to as a kid, because if you didn't constantly read the room and you read the room wrong, you, you could possibly get abused or yelled at or anything like that. But I've been able to use that as a way to always customize the classes for the, my clients based on what I'm just reading from whatever energy they're giving off, whatever their body posture is, their facial expressions. And I have been told by uh, clients and students that they're, they're always amazed at how I'm able to shift the class into something that they needed. And the huge reason is because, well, yeah, I, I'm reading the room. Like half of my energy is spent just scanning how people are doing, scrapping things in my mind that I was going to do for the class, but I'm realizing that's not going to work for this particular uh, group dynamic, adding new things in. Um, so I think that's a huge thing. And, and again, uh, going back to uh, my partner, the, the one who made the joke about like the worst thing I could ever tell you is tell you you're like your mom. Um, he had said, he's like, you are somebody who cares so much about other people and the fact that you have that lookout for other people if you had had a normal upbringing i don't know if you would have had that same aspect about you um so and that's something i always try to think of is you know there, there's a lot of negative that happened there's a lot of stuff i had to overcome because of how i was brought up but there's a lot of good things that came out of it too most definitely. It, it seems like, you know, the fact that you care so much about people and um, that seems like one of the things that that's driving you forward right now, that that's pushing you to to keep moving forward, to keep fighting for the for the for the next day, you know, for not that you're in, a, in a such a bad place that you, you know, but but I mean, but it's, it's like your it's, it's your engine. It keeps you going. Um, and I think that's that's really so special. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And, you know, yoga is super cathartic right but i imagine that being an instructor is cathartic too i mean there are so many yoga sessions where i've you know gotten out of shavasana and realized i was crying um because you're releasing so much <laughs> um when you have had trauma that like you know um i think it's its own form of of healing and you know i imagine that it, being an instructor, you are finding some healing in that as well. Not just in practicing, but in, in, you know, teaching as well. Get into this space where, you know, because especially as a, a yoga teacher, you have to be in a good space, uh, at least some type of meditative mindset in order to really move the class forward. Um, otherwise, you're just barking poses at them. And I, I would feel it myself. And, you know, sometimes the only deep breaths I'd be able to take were the deep breaths that I was like guiding my students into, like, you know, as we're breathing to meditate or breathing to be in the pose. And, you know, I always like, I always tell my students, you know, 
you know, going back to that whole, like, you know, crying during yoga, it's like the biggest misnomer or or the biggest misconception we will ever get with yoga is that yoga makes you happy. And like yoga, you know, and, and yes, some deep breaths or good, like rigorous practice after a hard day can feel amazing. But at the end of the day, that mindful practice, and, and I say that for any mindful practice, not just yoga, if we are, you know, doing Tai Chi or anything very mindful, uh, especially breath centric and mindful, we're going to peel some layers back and that facade is going to get removed. And all of a sudden it's just going to let loose. And, you know, it's, it's actually really common. Um, I've had students who would start crying during Shavasana and they would, they would be embarrassed about it, but it would be like this, no, this is common. Like something got peeled back and this was more of your true form coming forward and you needed those tears. You needed to process. It's it's awesome what you're doing, and I think you know it's um, it's really nice to hear you talk about it. And not only are you healing yourself, but you're you're healing other people too. So it really is a positive thing that's come out of all of this. Thank you. It's a, yeah. I, I always think there's a the a saying, you know, God made broken people like you and me to help broken people like you and me, and that's that that's kind of how I try to see it is. You know, I'm still finding my way forward, but I have the flashlight and I can at least shine it in front of me and hopefully guide some people who are, you know, standing behind me. Um, I, Jamie and I are going to adopt you just so you know, like we're good. We're, we're, we're going to be your mom and dad now. Okay. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wonderful. <laughs> <When's the dinner? laughs> so yeah, so you, you're a yoga instructor, but you're also a writer too. That is correct. So that that is kind of my first love. I, I always like to say, you know, this is one of the more positive early childhood experiences that I was writing before I even knew how to write letters. And I would just make these scribbles because I would see books and I didn't understand what letters were at the time. So I just made scribbles to be my my words. Um, but yes, I am a writer and I, I write a bunch of everything whenever, and when anyone asks like, well, how do you, what do you write? And I'm like, yes, uh, I've, <laughs> so one of my lame claims to fame before the whole TikTok world was I was a, uh, freelance writer for Huffington post. And one piece I wrote actually my father, after my father died, which was uh, a to-do list for myself, 10 things to do after my father's death. Uh, was not only featured on Huffington Post's main page or the main women's page, but they translated it into other languages. So they put it, so they could put it onto their other websites. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Um, but on top of writing for websites, I have two fiction novels out right now. I have a couple collections of poetry, including my most recent one, which is called Venom. I just released a short story collection called The Secret to a Happy Marriage. And I've had so many people <laughs> message me about that one being like, oh my goodness, you wrote a self-help book. I'm like, no, 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 no. Those are short stories. And the irony is like, none of those marriages are happy. Like, the, like if you're using this as a to-do, God bless you, because you're not going to have a very happy marriage. And uh, I am currently editing a a young adult novel that I've decided that I'm going to release in 2021, uh, especially now that I have kind of that TikTok following. I'm hoping to really use that because I I tend to publish everything myself. It's very hard to do mainstream publishing these days. And yeah, just to be able to kind of get that out. So that's been my main thing now that uh, I'm mostly furloughed thanks to the pandemic. That's amazing. That's that's so cool, Abby. Like you're just a oh gosh. You're just right now. You're just a bright light, and like that's, like you're a bright light, but it's a warm light. Like I'm just oh uh, gosh. You're so cool. Oh goodness, thank you. <laughs> um, so 
if you could describe grief, we, we've, we've kind of, um, how do I say this? We've developed kind of a concept of grief is, right? So, you know, grief is to you what? What would you say if you were to complete that sentence? Grief is? I would say grief is the feeling of destruction of hope. I think is, 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 if I have to boil it down, that destruction of that hope. Um, you know, I always hear that, you know, forgiveness is um, letting go uh, uh, or letting go of hope of a better uh, yesterday, a better past. Um, but I, I, when I think about grief and especially the complexities of grief, it's not just, oh, I've lost something and that makes me sad. It is something that I had hope would be different has been completely dashed. And I have to deal with the extremely complex emotions of that dashed hope. That's spot on. That, that is profoundly spot on. <laughs> well, Abby, thank you so much for being here today, for telling your story. Um, it's, you're, you're a fighter, dude. You're in, in the best ways. Um, you're an amazing person. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Yeah, excited to, uh, you know, read your, read your stuff. Definitely. Oh, you know, thank you guys. Share it. Thank you guys so much. And again, thank you for letting me be on here and, and to talk about my story. Most definitely. And uh, thank you all for tuning in today's episode of Emotional Duct Tape. Um, and we'll see you next time.